Have you ever uh, gone through a text of scripture or a study or uh, heard a message and then wondered at the end, so what do I do with that? Um, I've got some examples here of um, some inventions that seemed like good ideas at the time, but what do you do with that? Go ahead, Isaiah. We've got four clips here. I mean, can you see yourself walking through Walmart with that on so that you might be able to hear the teller, you know? Uh, I, I needed to put some eye drops in, um, and, and so you do this. This might not be quite clear to you. That's a roll of toilet paper. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's quite handy, but uh, can you really see yourself ever using that? Um, and and this one, Robbie, I was thinking about you with this. That's actually a, a toilet bowl plunger stuck to the back of her helmet, and it's holding her head up so that she doesn't fall over while she's sleeping on the subway. Um, I mean, wouldn't that be a great addition to every desk job? Or, or, or perhaps, I'm going to pass this one off, when Ryan happens to be preaching something that's a little bit on the boring side, and there's this attachment that comes up over the back of your chair, and he doesn't know that you're just plain sitting there. Well, the thing I wanted to encourage you with is that by time we're done with Acts chapter 6 today, that will not be your experience. Because I believe from this passage of Scripture that God is going to bring us to some conclusions and you will know exactly what you're supposed to do with it. So I'd like to invite you to go there to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. I'm entitling this, Unleashing Gospel Power. Follow along there as I read. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of, of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. As we start through this passage together and try to draw from it what uh, the Lord is telling us, I've got three things, three specific courses that we're going to take as we go back through it. First of all, we're going to look at some general principles. Then we're going to take those and apply certain practical principles, and I think you'll see clearly the difference between the two, and then a present application. So let's look at some general principles first. Let's go right back through the passage together. Number one, there's a need that exists. Their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The first thing I'd want to be able to identify for you with this is that anytime there is movement, there's friction. Simple scientific reality. The body of Christ was on the move. They had seen overwhelming growth. Huge influx of believers. By this time, numerically, we've been told of at least 8,000 converts. 3,000 and more. The very first day of the birth of the church, Acts chapter 2, there's a recording of another huge influx of at least 5,000. That's how many we're told about. 
the believers were multiplying. The church was exploding. And wherever there's movement, there's friction. And so there was need created because of this huge influx of believers. Now, you need to understand a little bit of historic context relative to the need of the widows. We don't have time to fully delve into this, but I want to at least give you this to chew on for a while. It's the responsibility of men to take care of ladies. And the net result of that in the early church was when there were widows, the church cared for them. Prior to that, even, and remember, we're dealing here with Jews. So far, all of the believers are Jews. It referred to the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The Hellenists are Greek Jews. They're Greek-speaking Jews. As opposed to the Hebrews who are Aramaic speaking Jews. Another side note, prejudice is alive and well in the early church. Okay? And there was conflict because of it. And they made distinctions even inside of the body. Because of the persecution that that early church suffered, there was great financial need. And so widows really needed, even more so than when they were in their pre-Christian state within Judaism, now they've come over and a lot, many of the families have lost their jobs. They've been disfellowshipped from their synagogues. They're no longer welcome in Jewish gatherings. They're no longer able to do commerce with Jewish merchants. Now they are on their own. And it created great need for their widows. And so the body was caring for them, seeing that their daily needs were being met routinely. But there's a conflict. Because of the uh, the lack of distribution toward the Hellenists, the complaint arises. And so we first of all see that the need exists. And number two, the need produces a problem. The need is different than the problem. The need is the widows need to be fed. The problem is uneven distribution. And overburdened apostles. It was assumed that leadership would care for this problem, as is appropriate for leadership. Leadership's supposed to address problems, but the, the apostles end up having to shift gears from what they desire and are called to be doing, and so their time is being given over to the task of seeing that widows don't starve. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. So it's these Greek-speaking Jews that are offering the complaints. Uh, we won't, don't even really have the ability, I, I don't believe, to delve into whether the complaint, complaint's a strong word. We hate the word complain. Was it right? Was it wrong? I won't comment because the text doesn't. I don't know if they were handling it appropriately or inappropriately. All we know is there was a problem and it was causing conflict within the body and a misdirecting of uh, function for the leadership, namely the apostles. So general principle number three, leadership therefore develops a solution. And so the apostles get their heads together and say, we, we've got to address this somehow and they say it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Here's their solution. We need to install some leadership to take care of this issue. By the way, for those of you who have been regularly coming to build, you're hopefully observing a process that we're walking through that's the same that we do every Thursday night when we study the scriptures. I'm leading you through some simple observations about the text right now. We've not begun yet to try to interpret those things. We're simply trying to understand what's there. 
Okay, that's what good Bible exposition does. We go in first, and let's find out what the Bible actually says. That's what we're doing here, okay? So it's important for you to recognize that process as we're going through, okay? What I do in my sermon preparation is no different than what I would do in my Bible study personally, nor what you yourself can do when you go in and try to figure out what does this thing say, what does it mean there, and then try to draw some personal application from it. We're, going, we're doing exactly the same thing here right now as what you experienced Thursday evenings, and then therefore would experience in your own time uh, when you open your Bible in the morning. General principle number four, solutions are found in the form of godly people. This is a pattern which repeats itself numerous times through the scriptures. You see it over and over and over again. When there's a problem, let's go back a step. When there's a need that creates a problem, the solution very often is found in human form. Because God has chosen to work through and in the lives of men and women to fill needs. Consider back through even your Bible history a little bit, and you consider when Israel is found in slavery, found in bondage. Here's another great example. Just at the time when everybody's reaching for their paper to start fanning themselves, godly men rise up in order to make sure the air conditioner's working. I mean, isn't that a great thing? There's the need, creating a problem, and a solution is found in the lives of men. Great example. Thank you, Mike and Jeremy, so much for the perfect timing of that illustration. So, seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit of wisdom, are chosen, whom we will appoint to this duty. So important to recognize that when problems exist in the body, it's people in the body that are going to be the solution to those problems critical to understand that. It, it gives you a reason to be here because God is equipping and preparing you to be used to meet needs. General principle number five, godly solutions produce unity. What they said, that being the, the apostles, what they said pleased the whole gathering. Isn't that kind of like a glass of lemonade on a hot day? I mean, don't you just go, this is good. Can, can you imagine the entire gathering? How many did we say? In excess of 8,000 people, and they're all pleased. Isn't that something? The entire gathering of believers said, ah, this is good. I want to remind you, when Jesus prayed in John 17, he prayed that his believers, the church, would be unified, that they would be one. And what would happen as a result of the unity of the body? The world will know that I am indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. When 8,000 people go, ah, everybody around him says, now that is weird. There's something supernatural going on here, and whatever they've got, I'd like a piece of that, because that is weird, and it's a good kind of weird, because there's over 8,000 people abiding in unity. That's huge. What they said pleased the whole gathering. And one more, final general principle, needs met in unity glorify God and promote the gospel. And here's the exciting part of the passage. As a result of this great sense of, ah, it's good, as a result of the body walking together in harmony, as a result of the complaining being gone and needs being met, the power of the gospel goes out 
beyond what it has already been accomplishing. And multitudes more are being reached with the message of the gospel. The word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Now, I'm not watching behind me, so I have no idea how well Isaiah's doing with keeping up with me. He's doing okay? Thanks, Isaiah. By the way, see, I'm not at the controls with that. He is. So he has to try to predict what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah, that is funny. <laughs> so let's shift gears. We're going to go to some practical principles drawn from those general observations that we've made, the general things that we've observed about the passage. Let's start digging a little bit deeper and talk about what that actually means to us a little bit. Practical principle number one, widows and orphans matter. Some of you might be wondering, how did Mark end up preaching on the same day that he just got this commissioning thing? And to be honest with you, when I first got the call and asked me about doing it, I thought, that's weird. Here's the opportunity to be able to really toot your own horn on the big day, huh? I mean, isn't it strange to preach on being a deacon on the day you're installed to be one? I mean, come on. Well, I'll take you back a little bit just so that you can identify with it. Ryan had asked me to consider doing sort of a, a charge to the church perhaps this afternoon after lunch with the initial statement when we would review the statement that I had put out concerning what I saw for the vision of the role of deacon and be able to somehow embrace that together as a body and, and encourage people on toward that vision. And as he was weighing out how to fulfill that in a time slot in the day and have it be meaningful, he called me and he said, Mark, how about if you just instead preach on that subject? Uh, take Acts chapter 6 or James chapter 1, uh, James 127, and we'll loot that passage in just a minute, and, and search that whole thing out. Now, Acts chapter 6 is often cited as the passage where we would go to talk about deacons, the calling out of the first deacons. But I want to suggest to you that that is not what this passage is about. It's not the thrust. If it's, it's included in there, we read about it here, but it's not what the passage is about. You know what this passage is about? It's about the fact that widows had need and the church met it. That's what the passage is about. And so that's where we're going with the passage. We'll glean some things about church leadership along the way because it's there and it's rich. But if we miss what the passage is about, then we've missed the heart of God in the passage. And the passage is about widows and caring for them. And we're going to draw some very specific conclusions about that as we move forward. Keep that one tucked here. It's a very important practical principle. We need to take care of those who are vulnerable. Principle number two, the church is responsible. I'm pausing on purpose because I want that to sink deeply into your spirit. The church has taken hold of, the church in Acts chapter 6 has taken hold of the reality that there's a need in that group and they step up to meet the need. We must be able to reckon with the reality of responsibilities that belong to us. We cannot shirk them. It's handed to us. We need to receive it. We might wonder, what in the world am I going to do with it? But I can't just pass it off. It's mine. And so the need to search out some wisdom, what am I going to do with this thing now? And that's exactly what the apostles did, by the way. As they looked on, people complaining, they said, this one's ours. It's our baby. We've got to deal with this. What are we going to do now? And they came up with a decision to install some more leadership in order to care for the need. But they weren't shirking. They took it on. They said, this baby's ours. We're going to feed it. Number three, problems identify opportunity for growth. We don't need to view problems as problems. 
Problems are opportunities. I mean, consider this possibility in Acts chapter 6. There were no widows to feed. Now there's a problem. Because that means there's been no growth. There's nobody to take care of. But instead, multitudes have been coming to Christ. The gospel is flourishing. They're exploding at the seams. Can you imagine what other problems they were facing that we don't even hear about? Where are we meeting on Sunday, guys? Did you know they didn't have meeting halls for 8,000 in Jerusalem? How are we going to disciple all these people? How are we going to be able to fill? How are we going to meet the financial needs of people that are losing their jobs? How are we going to care for? We can't even find enough water to baptize them all. Those are all good problems. And this is a great problem. Because it provides opportunity to demonstrate gospel power. You see, problems are given to us by God in order that we might apply the gospel to them and expose his great power and walk in it and see it unfold in our lives. So what problems are you facing? Apply the gospel to them. And God's power will be made known. Principle number four, leadership requires qualification. It's so important to be able to reckon with the fact that you need to put people into positions who are equipped and qualified to be in them before they're in the position. Some of you in your employment situations have experienced the occasion where someone decided, you know, so-and-so would perform a lot better if we kind of boost them into a higher rank. Maybe it'll kick them along a little bit, motivate them. Let's, let's promote them and see if they'll live up to the job. Anybody ever been there? It doesn't work. The qualifications need to exist in advance. I personally believe that God is in the business of calling all men and women into some kind of leadership role. And therefore, it's our responsibility, our opportunity to continue to be equipped to be ready. That's what discipleship is all about. That's why it's one of our pillars. You are moving toward a greater level of responsibility. So today, be equipping yourself and be prepared for what comes tomorrow. You know, Stephen didn't have in mind, you know, I think I'll study my Bible today because tomorrow they might need deacons. Uh-uh. He was just doing the stuff of growing as a believer, growing as a man of God, walking in the wisdom of the Spirit of God, and because he was there, he was equipped and ready to meet a need when it showed up. And so the need for us to be able to walk uprightly in preparation for the days to come. Next practical principle, jurisdiction and delegation are necessary to meet needs. What number am I on here? Neat. Hey, I have, I have subscript notes that I haven't looked at yet. You don't realize how much you're missing because I'm not looking at the notes. <laughs> I do want to go back to my, what I had written on this jurisdiction principle here. In fact, I'd like to read this to you. It is so important to know who is responsible for what. So much of Scripture is committed to helping us to define life roles and responsibilities. What a huge blessing to know what is expected of me and what is not. Isn't it tough when you're not really sure what they want? But God makes it clear. See, part of God's nature and character is that he delegates. I've given a lot of thought to this, and I'd love to be able to teach on this to a great length at some time. In fact, I probably ought to write something about it, but 
the, the, the delegating nature of God. See, his very first statement about mankind includes delegation when he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. That's a delegation statement. God is in the process of setting up jurisdiction. Jurisdiction is, is a word that means the right to speak. Who has the right to speak in this set of circumstances? And God is very clear about delegation and about jurisdiction. It's so important to understand it. We could say a lot more on it. Several messages in, rea in reality. Because jurisdiction is so important and so confused in our day. Who's responsible for what? It's, it's important when it comes to the widows. We'll talk about that some when we get to the, the, actually the practical application of those things. One more practical principle. Leaders are not raised up to fill leadership roles. Leaders are raised up to meet needs. Think about that one for a minute. This passage was not given to us to extol the office of the deacon. Rather, it's given to describe how the early church met real needs and how the gospel flourished because of that. Filling a leadership role does not magnify an individual. It empowers him or her. This is so critical for you to understand. I can't say it strongly enough. It empowers him to be more effective in meeting needs. It places clearly defined responsibility on his or her shoulders to perform a task that meets needs. Some fill a leadership role because of what it gets them. The servant of Christ fills a role because of what it enables him to give. Brothers and sisters, it is wrong to have leadership roles just because we want to be able to put people into leadership offices. They did not just set about and say, well, you know what, if we're going to be a whole church, we probably ought to create a deacon role. Uh-uh. I believe, therefore, it's also important for us to be able to, re to evaluate and critique periodically how effective are we in meeting needs in the roles that we currently are functioning in and if there are needs that are not being met does that mean raising up new leaders or does it mean revamp what I'm doing because I'm shooting at the dark and I'm not hitting anything so much of tradition just shoots in the dark and doesn't hit anything why do you happen to have that particular church function why are you doing that well, didn't you know Moses started this? And we're going to do it as long as Moses. If it was good enough for Moses, we're going to do it. Well, Moses might have had a reason for what he did. We need a reason for the things that we're doing, and that's exactly what's happening in this passage. Leadership roles are important in order to be able to see that needs are met. So let's look at some present application, and we're going to spend a little bit of time here. I want to look at the applications in two different general categories. One of them is corporately. What does this passage say to you and me as a body? How do we take what we're seeing here in this passage and put it to, into life here so that we walk in accordance with the wisdom of the Scriptures? Number one. We need a purposed, planned strategy for meeting real financial and physical needs. Meeting real needs takes preparation. I've had a long time burden, years and years long burden, about the fact that the church is not equipped, it's not even on its radar screen to meet the needs of widows. I'm talking about meeting the needs of widows. It's so opportune that Jamie's not here, because I'm going to talk about Jamie, okay? Um, she probably will listen in later on, so I'll be careful. 
I think she'll appreciate it. Do you know it's our responsibility to take care of Jamie if something happens to Ryan? I mean, let me, let me say that with, listen to this and hear it with bold capital letters. It is our responsibility to take care of Jamie if something happens to Ryan. Now I want you to think for a second, are we ready? If something were to happen to Ryan tomorrow morning, and the baseball bat that was intended for Carson hits him in the back of the head, and he's gone, he's out, perhaps disabled, perhaps gone, are we ready to take care of Jamie? You say, well, isn't there insurance for that kind of stuff? Might be, but you know what? Insurance isn't her only need. You say, well, aren't there government programs for people like that? I can't say what I really want to say about that philosophy. I've been listening to Kenny too long. <laughs> Kenny's one of the tenants in our mobile park, okay? He, he, he apologizes for what he's going to say and then says it anyway. <laughs> we cannot shirk responsibility, and the scriptures place responsibility for the care of widows squarely on our shoulders. Let me share with you just briefly, if I can, I'm, I'm at a great advantage up here. I don't own a watch. <laughs> and as per my wife's suggestion, I didn't bring my cell phone up. So I have no idea what time it is. You're completely at my mercy. I want to describe to you why we own a mobile home park. We lived in church-provided housing for years, meaning a parsonage or some other facility that was provided for us as being part of church leadership. The entire time that I lived in church-provided housing, and I'm talking about 20-plus years, 25 years, lived in somebody else's house that was provided as part of the job, I was always concerned for my wife's sake because if something happened to me, the day I died, she loses her husband, his income, and her house. Because in the traditional cultural church, she doesn't have what they need. They need a new preacher. And they need to house him, so she's got to move. And that need, that, that tension for me as a husband who desires to provide for his wife caused us for years to desire to get into a place where we owned our own home. And finally, uh, 12 years ago now, that happened for us. We bought a single-wide mobile home in a mobile home park. Still had five children at home, and we crammed all five of us into this single-wide mobile home that we paid $10,500 for. Elise and Joanna, our two daughters at the home at the time, were sharing an 8 by 8 bedroom. They literally could not stand up and get dressed in their bedroom because it was full of beds and dressers. So they get their clothes out of their little cubby hole and go someplace else to change because they didn't have room. But it was ours. And if something happened to me, my wife had a house. And according to God's providence, that mobile home happened to be in a mobile home park that was in severe financial trouble. And the owner came to us and said, if you can save it, you can have it. You just have to take on all the debt that I had. Through a sequence of events, we came into ownership of that mobile home park. It was a result of a desire to not be vulnerable anymore because I knew that if I was pastoring a church and something happened to me, the church was not ready. In fact, it wasn't even on the radar screen to be ready because there's programs for people like that, aren't there? Shame on us, because it's our responsibility to take care of our widows and our orphans. It's our responsibility to be able to, to be equipped and prepared to meet real needs of real people. 
And part of my passion for the deacon role is to be ready if Jamie needs us. Or any one of you ladies that's in here. Or any one of you fellows who becomes disabled or put into a place where you need us. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But we can't do it unless we're ready. And we have to change our minds if we're going to be ready. It's got to affect the way that we live today if we're going to be ready for tomorrow. It involves repentance in our thinking and shaping our actions so that we can actually function as a body that can impact our culture because they'll look at us and say, they are weird. The scriptures are so affirming on the need for the church to take care of widows that Paul devotes almost an entire chapter of scripture to it in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Because he spells out all the qualifications necessary for the church to support a widow. He says, if there's a widow who's going to be supported, here's what she needs to qualify in. He said, the Bible says that? Yes, it does. Young ladies, one of the best investments you can make in your future. Because statistically, I think it's somewhere around 80% of you ladies that are married will be widows. That means your husband is going to die before you. One of the best investments you can make in your future is faithfulness today. Because faithfulness today qualifies you for support later. Go through 1 Timothy 5 and read it. Find out what Paul says should happen. Now he, first of all, acknowledges families responsible first. If there's a widow who has children, children, take care of your mom. Cousins, take care of your aunt. But if there's a widow indeed, and there's nobody stepping up to the plate, it's ours. We get the privilege to show the power of the gospel by taking care of somebody of need. If we're ready. If we're equipped. Present application, corporately, number two. As leaders, we need to be willing to accept responsibility for seeing that the needs of the flock are met. That's you and me, Wayne. Ryan and Ben, that's you. We need to be willing to accept that responsibility and to shepherd our flock in accordance with those real needs and that real responsibility. Final corporate application. We need to be diligent to see that the needs are met so that the word of God can prosper and the gospel can flourish. I want to ask a question. Actually, I need to go back to one of these slides that I missed here. Why did the gospel multiply, according to verse 7 in Acts chapter 6? Was it because the apostles could pray and preach more effectively? Or was it because there was peace and unity in the body because needs were being met? Yes. Both had to be present. Meeting of genuine needs enabled effectiveness in the preaching of the gospel. But if you preach the gospel and you don't meet needs, the gospel is impotent. Another question, actually, thinking about you, Phil, in our conversation earlier in the week. there's such strong emphasis on meeting the needs, the physical needs of those in the vulnerable classes. Why is that? That's, that? Because that's what we were. Why is it from God's vantage point? I mean, what's God more concerned about? Is he more concerned about the salvation of a man's soul or the food that's needed for his table? Yes. You see, God loves to meet needs. 
He's a need-meeting God. God cares about you and your need. And he moves, he acts in order to be able to meet your need. Because God is kind. Because he loves. Because he cares. And so, he cares about everything. And he doesn't distinguish. God reigns on the just and the unjust. You know why? Because he cares. Because he loves to provide. Because he loves to meet needs. And so he extends himself to meet our needs. It's in his nature. It's in his character. See, he's, he's made you like himself because God is completely consistent within his nature, within his character. And likewise, if you are unkind in one area of life, it'll spread over to everything else. You can't live inconsistent with who you are on a regular basis. And so if you nurture kindness, if you nurture caring in your heart, if you become like him, you're going to care. You're going to care about the needs of people. And all of a sudden, it doesn't matter if they meet your agenda or if they put a notch in your rifle or not. You simply care. And if people are hungry, if people need their rent paid, if people are running out of gasoline and can't get to their job, or if they don't have a job at all, and it, all of a sudden, it matters. And the brother or sister that happens to be in the same fellowship as you and you show up on Sunday and you find out that there's real need and you say, what can we do? Because that's what God would do. See, all of this is built off from the nature and character of God himself. And to be honest with you, it's, it's inappropriate. In fact, I believe it's even sickening to say, we care about the spiritual needs of people, but show no care at all for the routines of their daily life in which they're struggling. It's inconsistent with the gospel. Jesus ministered a real physical need. The apostles saw that real, genuine, physical daily needs were met. And Wayne, you and I have the opportunity and privilege of leading this body forward as a compassion ministry. We get to be the visible face of the compassionate end of what's going on. Now, in reality, we don't get to be the face. That's, that's a good thing. They don't have to look at me and say, that's compassion. Because, it, However, the actions that we would lead this body toward, what we become identified as, what, the, what those around us see us as, what those who come through the doors experience, by God's mercy will be a reflection of his character of caring for the needs of people. And so we need to lead in that direction. And as a result of that, the gospel flourishes because it's shown to have real power. It has the power to change you and I from stingy, greedy, self-serving uh, consumers to all of a sudden being those who are the extending hands of Christ reaching in to meet the real needs of people. And the gospel changes us and makes us like himself. Let's talk about some personal applications. As individuals, we must take personal inventory of our hard attitude toward those of need. I would encourage you to consider how you look at other people or even whether or not you do look at other people. I'm so thankful for the Lord locating us in Alabama in a mobile home park, in a neglected mobile home park. We didn't know poverty till we came here. We didn't know dysfunction like we know it since coming here. And when you get a really good glimpse at the real lives of hurting people, take evaluation, take inventory, 
What's your attitude toward those of need? How well do you eat? How well do you sleep? Where do you sleep? You see, I'll be honest with you. You know what my first thought is? Well, they have choices. Most of them have made choices to get themselves where they are. They, I'm hard-hearted. And we need to consider whether our attitudes are the attitudes of Christ. And be willing to repent. Repentance is a scary, isn't that, isn't that a scary word? When I just said that, didn't something in you go, repent? That's, I mean, isn't that what sinners do? Uh-huh. <laughs> Repentance for you and me ought to be routine. I mean, it, it's a way of life for a Christian to repent. Because the Lord is continuously making himself known in new dimensions to us. He's continuously unveiling our eyes to where we fall short of his expectations, of his character, of his nature. And so for you and me, repentance ought to be a daily deal. I mean, every time something new shows up in the scripture, say, huh, that's new. I'm going to do that instead of the way I was new. That's repentance. So allow the Lord to unfold for you and your own thinking the places where you've come short and say, Lord, I'm all yours again. I want to identify myself in unity with the spirit of Christ who died and was raised again. I want to walk in newness of life. Make it alive in me. So be willing to, to critique yourself. We must steward our finances in such a way as to enable mercy giving, not functioning only as consumers. This is going to be painful. You've got to change the way you use your money. Ephesians 4 gives us a lot of instructions. Verse 28 specifically says, Let the thief no longer steal. Paul is going to tell us why you go to work every day, guys. But rather let him labor. So don't steal, go to work. And why are you supposed to go to work? Rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That wasn't given to you from the time you were little. What's been given to you is get a good job, get all you can to consume it all. In fact, if you play the system right, you might be able to consume more than you make because you get to live on other people's money build up huge debt, live above your own standard, make a good show, enjoy swimming pool, three cars, uh, all, the, all the stuff, that, you know, television in every room, 14 cell phones, uh, all the stuff. That's not what the Spirit of Christ says. He says, live simply, see that your needs are met, and then meet other people's needs. You have to critique your checkbook. Old school. You have to critique your debit card. You still use a checkbook, don't you? No. <laughs> oh, man. I'm old school. <laughs> if we're going to be able corporately to be prepared to meet real needs where's it coming from it's coming from us we got to do it differently lord jesus give us the desires of our heart to be able to walk according to your spirit in these things help us to change hard habits help us to content ourselves with godliness and feeding our spirit rather than having to be gorged on the stuff of the land. Help us to not live like our neighbors and feel like somehow we got to be in their standard. That's tough stuff. But I tell you, it's where the gospel meets the road. It's where the power of the gospel is unleashed. We have to make personal choices that reflect a perspective of who our God is 
and why he cares about people. And one more. You and I need to engage in active discipleship in order to be equipped as godly, wise servant leaders. If we're going to be equipped to meet the needs that are around the corner, the things that are on the horizon, we need to be busy getting to know Jesus better today and learning how to walk like him. This body needs more leadership. See, man, it seems like we got leaders coming out of our ears. You don't know what kind of work God has stored up for us. I believe it's big. So many things ex exciting are happening today. I, I can't even wait for tomorrow. It's huge. That reminds me of a car dealer up in New York. That's how he advertises. It's huge. God's plan for Redeemer Church, I believe, all the evidence indicating it is huge. I don't think we can calculate how far he wants to be able to impact the world. Which reminds me, I didn't want to miss this one. Do you realize how blessed we are to be able to be supporting the Kemp's? Do you know why? Because they're going to a place with huge physical need that they are equipped to meet in order to see the gospel explode in power. I mean, you, you've heard the reports, the, the needs of the children there, uh, kids without parents, kids without families, huge orphan communities, and they're going to a place where they have the opportunity to minister to those needs in the context of proclaiming the gospel and equipping others to do so. And we get to co-labor with them. And we can do so sacrificially. It's another evidence of the outpouring of God's blessing on us. We don't just have to watch it be some routine mission thing, you know. I mean, is there such a thing? But this rises to the pinnacle. I mean, we got the good stuff. Our God has given us all the good stuff. And you and I have the privilege of moving forward if we will purpose in our hearts to be able to do those things which are in keeping with His Spirit. And I just want to encourage you and call you out to be able to embrace who He is tomorrow morning by the decisions on what you buy and what you leave on the shelf. On purpose. Because you are going to have the privilege of representing the heart of Christ to someone of need. Someone who's sitting in this room right now and doesn't know the need that they might have to face soon. So God, help us. We want to know you. We want to be able to embrace you. We want to be able to nurture in our own hearts the same kind of heart that you have. So help us in Jesus' name. Amen.